today that's quite in-depth. Uh, I've never done a series on this book before, but we're going to uh, enter into the book of Romans in the Bible's New Testament. Okay, so again, if you want to get those kids a donut, you can do that. Plus, we do have the stream going in screen number of 11. If you've got little ones and they're getting a little bit you know, impatient, you can always bring them over there and watch the stream. It's uh, nice and clear there. Uh, so we're going to look at the book of Romans in the Bible's New Testament. Have any of you read this book before? Just asking. Yeah, it's, it's, Romans is known as if you're going to have a book that explains what Christianity is. If you're going to try and go through the basics, if you're going to try and be as thorough and as detailed as you can about the Christian faith, most people jump to the book of Romans. It's 16 chapters long, written by who? Paul. Yeah, well, good guess, right? He wrote most of the New Testament, but written by the Apostle Paul. Do any of you know why he wrote it? It does have an occasion which is given to us actually in the letter. Do you know why? Say it a little louder. You can join in Facebook, YouTube, our website. I think there's a chat box there you can use. No, he wasn't in prison. Not at that time. It's not one of the so-called prison letters. Test your knowledge here. There is an occasion to it. He wrote the book because he wants to visit these people in this church in Rome. Now, the curious thing about this church in Rome is he did not plant this church. So we don't really know exactly how the church in Rome got started. Some people say that uh, because of the believers, or sorry, not they weren't even believers yet, but because of the people who were there in the book of Acts, in the very opening of the book of Acts, you've got the, the, the Jewish celebration of Shavuot or Pentecost, and all these people are coming from out of town. Presumably there were some people all the way from Rome. This is listed in Acts 2. Maybe they became followers of Jesus there, and maybe they went back to Rome and started a church there. But we don't really know how the church in Rome actually got started. But Paul wants to visit there, and he wants to visit there on his way to where? Spain. Who said that? Good, yes. Okay, so that, that's in the book, but I mean, that's good. So he's on his way to Spain, and he wants to stop by Rome and visit these people. Now, he gives a list in Romans chapter 16, the very last chapter, of all these people who he knows. He names like 25, 30 people, and he knows all of their names and a little bit of their backstory. But he's never been to the church but he wants to visit and he wants to encourage the people. So before he gets there, he wants to send them this letter to try and, and build the foundation of what he's going to do. Now, he's also wanting to bring a financial gift over to uh, Jerusalem and the sort of mother church in Jerusalem. He's collected all of this from the Gentile churches in uh, Ephesus and Colossae, etc., and he wants to do that as well. So that's on his mind too, as he puts pen to paper and writes this letter. Now, this book, uh, especially the chapter that we're going to uh, look at today, 
is most probably right now in our in our time the most controversial the most explosive chapter in the bible is probably the chapter that we're actually going to look at today uh, in romans chapter one and you'll see why in a few moments but this is a chapter that in my view uh, somewhere down the road doing what I'm going to do with this chapter and anyone actually teaching just the straight message of this chapter is probably going to have some consequences. Maybe churches will have consequences for teaching out of this chapter because it is explosive given the particular culture that we're in, especially in North America, all right? And so if you've ever read this chapter, you know what I'm talking about, but we're going to go through it uh, in bits and parts uh, this morning. And what I would call this chapter is good news and bad news. Good news and bad news. And he's going to, he's going to start by laying it out right away. He lays the foundation for, I mean, really the faith of, of Christianity is, is, it starts right here in Romans chapter 1, but it's really a matter of good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? How many want the bad news first? Get it over with. How many want the good news first? 50-50. So Paul doesn't care, but he's going to start with the good news. It's good. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now, this is a standard greeting for a letter here of Paul, but this one's a little bit longer called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, kind of introducing himself. The gospel, I want you to notice that word, gospel in verse 1, gospel in verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in this, the Holy Scriptures, referring to what we would call the Old Testament, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Okay, we see who he is. We see what he's trying to say. Uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. So he's talking about himself and presumably perhaps a band of people with him who are called to bring this message, the gospel, to non-Jewish people who are out there in Rome. Now you'll see when you read the letter, there are some Jews there as well because he addresses that whole subject of how does God feel about Jews and Gentiles and all these things, he addresses it in the letter. So there are some there, but presumably you've got a lot of non-Jewish people there. And you also were among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Good so far. Not too controversial so far. But note the word gospel that he starts using there. And then he continues, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. 
God whom I serve with all my heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness of how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at least by God's will, the way may be open for me to come and to see you. He wants to do a visit. I long to impart to you some kind of spiritual gift. And he's, he wants to encourage them. And he says he's been prevented from visiting them. There are several times where apparently he tried and circumstances being as they were, he couldn't get there. He says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, to the wise, to the foolish. This is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And here is his sort of summation of what he thinks the gospel is. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, it's not by anything else, but by faith. It's there, you can't earn it. You can't work your way to it. It is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. And he pulls a quote out of the minor prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament, that righteous will live by faith. This is his definition of the gospel. So gospel is a word, I'll back up one slide, that means good news. Uh, the Greek word there, when you, when you uh, uh, go back into that language, is this word that's kind of like evangelion. And we get the word evangel from this, or evangelical, or evangelist. This is, has to do with the propagation of the good news, the preaching and teaching of the good news. But what is it? It's the righteousness of God that comes by faith into a person's life. So a person can be declared righteous, saved by the grace of God, by the gift of God through faith. In other words, for righteousness to be declared to you, you have to be unrighteous before. So here you have an opportunity, apparently, by faith to be declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. The implication is that without this, you're not righteous. Are you with me so far? So he's not saying that the gospel is about you becoming a better person. He's not saying that the gospel is about you being successful in life. He's saying that the gospel is about you being declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God and this can happen by faith. It's not that God isn't interested in you living a nice life. It's not that God isn't interested in you being successful. It's just that the gospel is primarily about you being declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Presumably, without that, you're not righteous. We'll see. You're with me so far? So that's the good news. 
That's the news that he wants to tell the world. That's the, world, the news he wants to tell Jewish people. That's the news he wants to tell non-Jewish people. He said, you have an opportunity to be called righteous in the eyes of God. Now he's going to get into the bad news. And here's the thing about Christianity. You cannot appreciate the, the gospel. You cannot appreciate... Uh, the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. You cannot appreciate this and understand it and even be interested in it without first being convinced of the bad news that is in your life. You first have to be at that place where you say, I have bad news that I have to deal with. And if you don't agree with that, and you don't have a conviction about that, and you don't think that there's any bad news in your life, it, then Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and all of these things is going to go in one ear and out the other. You may be able to say, Jesus died for my sins and the sins of the world, but you will not have a practical conviction about this. It's not going to mean anything in your day-to-day -day life. It's just going to be an intellectual knowledge. But when you become convinced of this bad news that he's going to now put on, on the page here, then you realize, ah, that's why the good news is so good. Okay, so just a caveat for you. We, you cannot explain Christianity you cannot explain it to this culture. You cannot explain it to yourself. It makes no sense at all unless you have a conviction about this bad news that is here. Okay? So he, here it is. And you've got, the, you've got the doctor and he's sitting with the patient and he is going to give the patient the news. And this is bad news. Now why does the doctor do that anyway? I mean, imagine being a doctor and you constantly have to tell people you have this problem, you have this problem, your life is being threatened, you know, and you see the reaction of people and you see the devastation of people. Why would you even bother to tell them? And you could just leave them alone and they could have their, you know, life the way that it is. And, but why would you tell them, hey, there's, there's bad news in your life? Right? So the doctor's thinking, I, I need to tell this person so that they can make choices or decisions. Why else would the doctor tell them? So they can plan? Did any of you see the football player who went into cardiac arrest on the field? What was the reaction? Everyone was in shock, but what else was the reaction in terms of a practical reaction? Players went down on one knee and kind of built a wall so people wouldn't see what was happening. And a lot of people were praying. Amazing how many people were praying. But what else was happening to that football player? Very important. Yeah, the, the, the people are running around trying to bring him back to life. Essentially, this football player dropped dead in one second on the field. His heart stopped. So what do they do? They, they do CPR on him. They bring out that machine, you know, that talks, and they put the thing on, and they run electricity to try to get the heart started. Because 
That bad news, everybody saw. It's right there on live television, all around the world now, everybody saw it. Thank God the outcome has been a good outcome. But there's bad news that happens all the time in people's lives, and it's not that dramatic. It's not that instant. The whole world doesn't see it. But you sit down with your doctor, and your doctor tells you the, it starts with T, tells you the truth. Why does your doctor do that? He or she tells you that because they care. They care. They care about people. So they enter into medicine. They want to help people. And so when they see there's something here in your life, they tell them the news even though it's bad. And this is exactly what Paul is going to do here. And watch how he does it. This is the passage here that is the most controversial, explosive, detested passage, I think, in North America right now. Now, there are places in the world where it's not detested at all. People read it and they say, of course. But here, this is a very, very controversial passage. The wrath of God, the wrath of God, imagine, is being revealed. So he says, present tense. Do you want to see the wrath of God? I'm going to tell you what the wrath of God is. It's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That is strong language. And then he says, as even as people have apparently lived in an in a unrighteous way, in a so-called wicked way, and have apparently suppressed the truth, he says, he goes on and he says, since what may be known about God has been made plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being uh, uh, understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What's he saying? He's saying people can come to a place where they understand the existence of God just by looking around. So they, they, what they're doing, in, in his view, is that they're intentionally suppressing the reality of God revealing himself to all humankind, and they're doing this intentionally, and it's so obvious, at least in Paul's view, it is so obvious that God is there, and that God has revealed himself, that people, humanity, he's not picking on any particular group, he's not saying Jewish people, he's not saying Gentile people, he's basically painting the whole brush of humanity with this one very, very strong and nasty stroke. And he's saying, you, we all have suppressed the truth of the revelation of God. On the screen is a, a beautiful shot from the new James Webb telescope. Oh my goodness, like you should go online and look at some of the crazy pictures that this telescope is bringing back, going back, in a sense, going back in time. It's so powerful. They call this the pillars of creation. This is actually a composite from two different cameras. It's the formation of stars. And this is from 6,500 light years away. So that's like two 
billion kilometers away. That's how far this thing can see. And it's so far that it takes, it takes the light that you're seeing on that picture 6,500 years just to get here. You say, well, I don't know if I agree with all those time scales and all of that. Well, I leave that with you, but that is a magnificent, magnificent portrait of something very, very far away. And it demonstrates the power and the existence of someone or something that should not be just swept under the rug and sort of trifled away. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying it's so obvious you don't need a James Webb telescope. You just need to look up at the stars at night with your eyes and see and look around and observe the creation. It implies very strongly that there is a creator. This is his argument. And he's saying even though we know this, we have intentionally suppressed this. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, became useless. Their minds, what they were thinking about became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's like he's speaking in the past tense about something that's happening now. The, the prophets in the Old Testament used to do this. And this is his way of trying to describe the situation of humanity without the righteousness of God. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, uh, for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So you say, ah, I don't, I don't understand this, you know, because obviously what he's talking about is idolatry. And I've got some idols on your, your screen there from the ancient world. And you, we look at this today and we say, oh, well, who's bowing down to a statue these days, at least over here in North America? And the problem with this is that we don't take time to understand what that really was and still is today. There are many places in the world where good old-fashioned idolatry is, is practiced. And what's going on with idolatry and people making these, these idols out of wood or stone and they're shaped like people or they're shaped like animals or they're shaped like all kinds of things. What's going on here is not people just bowing down to a statue. That's a very, very trite understanding of what idolatry was and is. What it is is you craft that statue and what you want is for the supernatural being to come into that statue so that you can communicate with it. You want to localize that spirit, whatever it is, clearly supernatural, and you want to house it in that idol so that you can communicate with it. And you want it to do things for you. You want it to give you crops. You want it to give you children. Uh, you, you may want it to hurt somebody else. But this, this is what idolatry was. It's not just bowing down before a statue. It's wanting that spirit to come into that statue so that you can have a communication with that God. 
Okay, and this, there were ceremonies by which they would bring the thing in and try to bring it into the, 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 the statue or whatever it was. And, and this is what, what they did. And this is what we see in the Old Testament. We see it certainly in the New Testament world. This is another one. Uh, this is um, uh, Diana or Artemis. And I could have put some other idols on the screen, but some of them are actually quite grotesque. Uh, and this one... Artemis is a, a deity of fertility, which you can probably figure out when you look at the way this thing is crafted. But again, you pick your god for whatever you want, and you try to bring that supposed spirit into that thing so that you can communicate with it. What happens when the idol is destroyed? Well, you have to rebuild another idol, because now you've lost your portal of communication with the spirit world. Do you see that? So Paul is saying, this is what people have done. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have made an exchange, and in his mind, it's an intentional exchange. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. You see this word exchange in, in uh, verse 23, verse 25. And so this is completely detestable by God. Folks, there's no other word to describe it. God absolutely detests this kind of thing. You see the anger that God has toward this kind of thing in the Old Testament all over the place. And it's certainly in the New Testament, it's there as well, but it's a shorter period of time. God absolutely loathes this. And let me explain to you why, because people often miss this. When God created humanity, he created humanity in the blank of God, in the image of God. Th that word essentially is like idol. So we are, in a sense, the idols of God. Say, I've never heard that before. It doesn't mean God is an idolater. It doesn't mean God worships idols. It doesn't mean God worships you and me. But he has made you and me in his, you and I, in his image. doesn't mean that God looks like a human and has a body. But there's something about humanity that is like God. We're made in his idol, in his image. And so he wants to inhabit people. He wants to dwell and live through and in people. And God cannot be localized. God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's everywhere all the time. He can't be housed. He wants to live in and through those who he has created in his image. And yet those who he has created in his image are saying, no thank you. What I want is this here idol that I make in the image that I decide and I want some type of spirit that I think may exist out there to come into this idol so I can house it so that I can communicate with it and have access 
to the spirit world through this little house that I've made for this little God. This is absolutely abhorrent to God. He detests this because what we're saying to him, in Paul's view, is, God, you are not what I want. You're, there's something that I don't like about you. There's something I don't want about you. There's, I would exchange you who are every, you're everywhere all the time, know everything, are all powerful, but I want to, uh, no thank you, I would rather have this idol. I'd rather have Artemis give me children. I'd rather have these other gods give me crops and water and maybe curse my enemy. The question is, why? Why in the world would we want to do that? Why would we say no to the creator who created something like this that you see on the screen, and yet we want to change and say, no, we'll, we'll have something else instead? Why would we do that? And I found a, a great um, little list. Uh, it's in a, a commentary on the book of Exodus from uh, an author by the name of Douglas Stewart. Hope it's coming on your screen. Yes, okay. And he gives a really, really simple explanation as to why, which I think is incredibly valid. Uh, number one, idolatry was guaranteed. So the formula is very simple. You carve the god out of wood, and the god comes into the icon, into the image, and now you can have God in your midst, or your God in your midst. You can get their attention quickly. You just follow the formula. Take the wood, craft the wood. The God comes in the wood. Your incantations, your oaths, your offerings will always be noticed. It's guaranteed. Number two, idolatry was selfish. You scratch the God's backs, and they'll scratch yours. You give them what they want. You give them an offering, and they will give you blessings. So you do your thing, and the God is obliged to do its thing. It's like a transaction. It's not a relationship. It's a transaction. Number three, idolatry was easy. Uh, the ancient world certainly didn't discourage this. You, it's easy. You do what you want with your life. You make your gods. You consistently show up. You be consistent, and you'll be in good shape. Your life will be good, supposedly. Number four, idolatry was convenient. The gods in the ancient world were not hard to come by. Idolatries all over the place. Statues are easy, easy to make, very convenient. Idolatry was normal. Number five, everyone did it. That's how women got pregnant. That's how crops grew. That's how armies conquered. Uh, idolatry was like oil, he says. Nothing ran in the ancient world without it. All over the place we see this. We look into the archaeology, we see it. Idolatry was logical. At least in their mind, you need crops, you use this God. You need children, you use this God. You need blessings, you use this God. You need curses, you use this God. You can have all kinds. Uh, I've seen people today and they wear chains and it's got every kind of religious view on that chain. They just leave nothing, nothing behind, right? Acts chapter 17, Paul walks into the city of Athens. He sees idols all over the place. And he sees one, and it says, to an unknown God. And so Paul uses that as a bridge, and he says, what you worship is unknown. I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. And he 
teaches them the gospel. Number seven, idolatry was pleasing to the senses. If you're going to be especially religious, it helps to be able to see your God so you can see it. Right? You can't see the God of the Bible, but this one here, this idol you've crafted, you can see it. Other people, when they enter into your home, they can see it, say, oh, wow, look at the gods that they worship. Number eight, idolatry was indulgent. Sacrificing to the gods did not often require sacrifice for the worshiper. Leftover food could be eaten. Interesting. Drink could be drunk. Generosity to the gods leads to feasting for you. The God doesn't eat it, well, you can eat it. And number nine, and this is where it gets controversial, idolatry was sensual. I did not put some of the idols that I could have put on the screen. They're a little too obscene. But often, idolatry was linked to sexuality, and this was used in the worship system. So there was definitely a sensual component to idolatry in the ancient world. Now, here's what Paul does with this. And this is what makes it so explosive. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. That's, this is what he's trying to say is his wrath. He gave them over. So he removed some sort of barrier, some sort of filter, and he just gives them over, gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts. And here he zones in on in particular, sexual impurity. And he basically is saying no holds barred in that area. And God gives them over to a no holds barred, no morality in that very sensitive and very particular area because, specifically because, they have rejected him and replaced him with created things. You say, this is very, very offensive. I do not like this. I do not agree with this. This is, this is bigoted. This is discriminatory. Okay. That doesn't change what he's saying, though. Our reaction in 21st century North America is not his concern. His concern is to say, this is what is going on. This is the prognosis of humanity. And he gets very specific, and he talks about two, two practices or two, I mean, even if I use the word practice today, people get offended, but he talks about homosexuality, and he talks about lesbianism, and he's quite specific. And he says, these things, this is what he's saying. This is an exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And so there are no holds barred anymore. You say, this is, I, this is unacceptable. We cannot read this. We cannot believe this in the modern world. That's, our reaction is our problem. Okay? We can react to it in a positive way. We can react to it in a way that we're repulsed by it. What are, we choose our reaction. But that doesn't change what he says. And there's not a message on the whole LGBTQ thing. I've done that before. But uh, let me say to you that one, one thing that we cannot do is to misrepresent what the text is saying. The text is saying what it's saying. We can be offended by it. We can close our Bibles. We can tear the page out. We can do whatever we want. But do not mischaracterize what the scripture is saying. If it is annoying, if it is irritating, if it causes us to be angry, that's our problem. Paul is not losing any sleep over it. 
over our reaction. His job, in his view, is to bring the prognosis. And his prognosis, as he believes to be inspired by the living God, is that we have turned our own way. We have replaced God with all of this stuff. And therefore, he says, well, no holds barred. It's quite something. And he, but he goes on. He, this is just a little blip on the radar to him, this whole sensuality thing. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So number one, they make these idols, and so he gives them over. God wants to live in people. He wants to live in and through people. People don't want that. They want it their way. They want their God. They, want, they don't want a relationship with God. They want all of this stuff out of the gods. And so God says, well, go ahead and take it. But I made you in my image. Now you're worshiping images. So now no holds barred in these very sensitive areas of life. But furthermore, because they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a what? Depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he goes through a list. It, he says they're filled with every kind of wickedness. They're filled with greed. They're filled with depravity. They're filled with malice and envy and murder and strife and deceit and gossip and slander and hatred and insolence and arrogance and boasting and disobedience to their parents. I mean, in the same passage, he's talking about this whole list of things, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, he covers a whole gamut of things. It's not just the one that makes it so controversial today. And he says, these things are the result of the fact that we have said, God, we are exchanging you for something else and so he says go ahead no holds barred in terms of your morals and your righteousness in your life anymore i want to give you righteousness by faith you do not want it so you can have what you want this is essentially what's being said although they know god's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. I mean, it, the text is absolutely explosive. They not only do such things, but they approve of those who practice them. I mean, this has got to be the worst news. The pro I mean, the prognosis here is just, it's unbelievable when we read this. And I totally, totally understand the offense that our modern culture has with this. But folks, again, the doctor is not trying to make us feel good. In his mind, this writer is saying, I'm going to write the truth here. And if it offends people, and if it angers people, and if it makes people want to get up and run out of the room, and it makes people want to hit me, and it makes, I'm going to, this is kind of his approach here. And Paul typically doesn't really have much worry about what people say anyway. If you look at his life in the Bible, he doesn't, it's very confrontational. So I totally, totally understand the offense that we have. But again, in his position, he's trying to explain the truth. He's putting the good news and the reason why 
we need it. Now you may say, as we finish up today, you may say, well, pastor, like very interesting, very, but I'm no idolater. Like I don't make little gods and want the spirits of the this and the that to come in. Like this is not a Disney movie. This is life. Like I don't do any of that stuff. This is not relevant to my life. Well, before you make that conclusion, the principle in this passage is there's been an exchange that's happened. We have exchanged the truth of God, this writer claims, for a lie. We have worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We'll stop for just a minute. Folks, North American culture? Like, this is one of the worst cultures in the world in terms of worshiping created things. Materialism, wealth, power, drugs, sex, alcohol. I mean, we run our lives on all of these things. Materialism is, a, is almost a worldview in our modern culture. That's worshiping created things. When we run our lives around all of this stuff, and it's material more, I need more and more and more, I need more stuff, I need more money, I need more of these things in my life, and that's going to make me happy. You could build an argument, folks, that that's the exact same thing in Romans 1, but just with a different bow, a different wrapping paper. And we need to be very, very sober if you're trying to live Christianly in this culture, we need to be very sober because the, the, the message that we're getting is you need more things in your life. You need more things. The righteousness of God is not a thing that you need. <laughs> what you need is all of these things here. And that's going to make you happy. Be careful. What are the lies that you need to exchange for the truth? This rabid pursuit of stuff. Folks, it's going to take us to the grave and worse. But this is what we're taught. This is the way we live our lives. This is the system that we live in. Folks, this is not what life is all about. Even Jesus taught this. is not life more than the food and the body and clothes and even Jesus he says look at the look at the sparrows for crying out loud it's a bird and it knows better than that and he's saying are you are you not worth more than many sparrows seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness that's what you need in life you need the gift of the righteousness of god even if your bank book is telling you one thing, you can stand on the righteousness of God. Even though your, your car is, you know, falling apart and rusty and, you, you know, you're trying to make ends meet and you're, all these things, that, well, you have, a, you have a way to get the materialism and get all of these things and run your life on all these things. Folks, it's going to leave you dry. But the righteousness of God will never run out. It'll never dissatisfy you. It will change and transform your life. And this, this is what he's claiming that you need. And I would add one more, one more little caveat here. Be very careful 
of a Christianity that is just like this idolatry. There is a Christianity out there where essentially you push the right levers and pray the right prayers and push the right buttons and you can get God to give you what you want. You can systematize it. It's very, very similar to ancient idolatry where we say, well, you know, you believe this way, quote this scripture, give this money to this ministry and so on and God is now obligated to bless you. And how will he bless you? He'll give you materialism. He'll give you money. He'll give you health. He'll give you prosperity. He'll give you intelligence. He'll give you success. Because that's what Christianity is all about. No, folks. That is not what Christianity is all about. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. What is it? It's righteousness by faith. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're not Jewish, God can look at you and say, my child, you are clean in my eyes. And you can have a relationship, not a transaction, but a relationship with the God who created everything. And that is the foundation of the gospel. If the musicians, if you're in the room, if you would come and just play softly here at the end, we're just going to close this service in prayer first Sunday that we're together in 2023, and uh, this is quite a book. I mean, this is just chapter one, and you see, whoa, I mean, right out of the gate here. It's very, very strong stuff, uh, but there, it, everything is covered in the book of Romans. You want to know about the work of the Spirit in your life, it's covered in the book of Romans. You want to know about why bad things happen in the world, it's covered in the book of Romans. You want to know, does God feel better about some people than he does other people? It's in the book of Romans. I mean, everything is in there. So we're going to take a nice long journey together through this book and uh, I hope that some of you will join us on Wednesday night and we're going to go deeper there uh, with that Bible study called the Purple Book but let me pray for you Father I thank you for each one who's here in the room and those who are watching uh, people online and so on uh, Lord we, we, we look at this at this uh, 2,000 year old uh, text here and who would have thought that, uh, that in the 21st century it would be the source of such uproar and the source of such anger? Who would have thought? Uh, but Lord, we, we want to look at it and we want to apply it to our lives. Lord, we, we don't want to be that, like that patient who walks into the doctor's office and doesn't want to hear and just tells the doctor, tell me, just tell me good news. Don't tell me anything that's wrong with me. Uh, but Lord, we want to, to hear what you have to say to us, even if it stings, God, even if it causes us to be challenged, even if it brings us to repentance, even if it uh, uh, makes us feel disturbed. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. And ultimately, Lord, that your desire to live in each person and live through each person and declare righteousness over people and freedom of sin over people, Lord, that that would be what we would want, that that would be what we would grab onto. I pray for those who are those who are in the room and 
Lord, they just, they're caught on a treadmill of sin. And it's just a cycle that keeps on going and going and they can't snap it. And they try to hide it. And it's just a cycle that keeps on going and going, oh God. I pray that the righteousness by faith, the, the, the power of the Spirit of Jesus would come into their lives and, and, and break that thing in their lives, oh God. That you would show the power of the gospel in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Uh, remember, if you're new, just visit me. I'll be down in the corner there, and you can give me your guest card on the way out. There's still some donuts there. Parents, if you want to grab them for your kids, God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday. The kids go back to school tomorrow. Oh, boy, the parents were not happy about that. Kids, are you happy to go back to school? Parents, are you happy they're going back to school? Some are saying, some are honest and saying, yes, God bless you. Have a great, great weekend.